Well, we're in the second week of a teaching series which we're calling Leaving Home for the Sake of the 99, where we're exploring the principle at the heart of Jesus' teaching about the individual in the context of God's plans and purposes to restore, redeem, and recreate the whole of the world. And here's what we're saying. There's no lengths to which God will not go. There's nothing that God will not lay down. And there's no price that God will not pay in order to seek and save the lost. And even though the whole of the Bible is that message encapsulated in the story. There are many different books in the Bible told by many different people at many different times in all sorts of different contexts. But the overarching narrative or story of the Bible is the story of a God who cannot, will not give up on the lost. It's an extraordinary story. But it's also embodied in the life of Christ, in the life of Jesus. Here we have Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father in the throne room of heaven. We're told in the Bible that he's surrounded by angels and archangels, by cherubim and seraphim. I think they're just worshipping creatures, but don't press me too hard on that one because I'm not too sure, but they're, they're, they're pretty cool. And all the company and host of heaven, and we're told that they are forever bowing down and praising him, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. That's Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father in all eternity, unbegotten, the second person in the Godhead. Isn't that amazing? And yet, here's what he does. He gives it all up. He leaves his heavenly home. He takes on flesh and blood. He makes himself subject to mortal space and time in order to bring us home. He lives the perfect life that none of us can live. He dies the death that we deserve to die for the sins which we committed, which he didn't commit. And, he raised, and he's raised up by the Father on the, third, on, on the third day in order to bring us into his heavenly home. But it's not just that Jesus embodies that narrative and that message of the God who cannot give up on, on us in the whole of his life. He actually embodies it in... Um, in in the way that he lives his life. There's a passage in Luke 15 where Luke, the gospel writer, um, describes three stories or parables which Jesus tells, which crystallize this message almost as perfectly as anywhere else in the Bible. They're stories that have to do with something lost and something found. Story number one is about a lost sheep and a shepherd who leaves the 99 of his fold in order to go after the one lost sheep. Story number two is about a lost coin and a thrifty person who loses their coin, searches high and low in every nook and cranny in order to get their coin back. And story number three is about a lost son who rejects his father so badly his father gives him up for lost or presumably dead, and waits every day, every week, every month, and for years, in season and out in season, doing what? Scanning the horizon of a foreign field for any sign of life or movement that would indicate his son is in fact alive and not dead. And here's the amazing part of the story. One day, he sees a movement which does remind him of his son. He hitches up his robes, he sprints across the field, and he embraces him as his own. Isn't that incredible? So the principle that we're exploring here is the God who lays it all down, who gives it all up, who pays the ultimate price in order to bring the one home. But as I said, Jesus, Jesus puts his money where his mouth is. He's not someone who just comes to dispense great teaching. He's someone, as I've just said, who embodies it in his life. 
And as I said, it's not just he's embod- he embodies it in the overarching narrative of his life, the one who gave up the throne room of heaven, lives the perfect life, dies the death we should have died, and is raised to new life in order to bring us home. He actually embodies it in many ways in his acts throughout his public ministry. And we're going to be um, looking at John 4, which James read for us just um, now over the next four weeks, the story of the woman at the well. And if you were here last week, let me just recap and re- reframe where we're going um, with this story. Um, In this story, you see Jesus crossing three major barriers to encounter with this woman. First of all, the gender barrier. Jesus is a man, you might have noticed. And in first century Palestine, men, let alone respected rabbinic teachers of the Hebrew scriptures, which Jesus was, would never fraternize with women in the context in which he fraternizes with this woman doesn't matter. He wants to get to her, crosses the gender barrier. Barrier number two is the racial barrier. You'll notice in the text that she's no ordinary woman, she's a Samaritan woman. If you want amazing context about why the Samaritans and the Jews despised each other and hated each other and wouldn't speak to each other, podcast last week's talk from Pete, because I haven't got time to go in here, and I'm not sure that wouldn't make some mistakes, but... They hated each other is the main point. They wouldn't talk to each other. The idea that a Jewish man would converse with a Samaritan woman was beyond the pale, and yet Jesus crosses the racial barrier to get to the one. And lastly, the social barrier. This is a woman who has a past. She's had five husbands and is currently living with a man who is not her husband. Now, today that might not strike us completely scandalous, but in first century Palestine, the reason it was scandalous is because she had broken almost some of the most vital and important Levitical and Mosaic laws from the Torah, from the Hebrew scriptures. And so in her community, she was despised, looked down upon, and spat upon. She was a social outcast, on the fringe, rejected. And yet Jesus crosses the social barrier in order to encounter her at her point of greatest need. So in the, way that, in the way that this story is set up, what we have here is an illustration of the God who lays it all down, who pays the ultimate price, who goes to any length in order to seek and save the one. So as I said, we're going to be living in this story for the next four weeks or so, and we're going to be taking four different windows or angles or perspectives on the story in order to help us better explore what it looks like to follow the God who leaves home for the sake of the one. That's where we're going. So this week, in a moment, we're going to be exploring the power of story. When the story of the life of this woman encounters the story of the life of God in Christ, some things stay the same, but everything changes. Next week, we're looking at the power of signs and wonders and how when Jesus speaks a prophetic word over the woman, yes, I know about you. You've had five husbands and the man you're currently living with is not your husband. He releases an extraordinary and energetic new dimension of kingdom activity into her life. Week number three is the power of words and how when Jesus speaks truth to her innermost being, he calls out in her her deepest identity and her truest self. Someone once said, God alone will tell me who I am. God alone will tell me who I am. And only when I come before him day in, day out without fear or deception and allow him to speak truth to my innermost being. So that's week three. And in the final week, we're looking at the power of invitation, how this woman is invited by Jesus into a transformative act of salvation that completely turns her life around. 
in such a way that she herself becomes an invitation to many into the same transformative life and saving act. Isn't that amazing? So that's where we're going. But today, um, just for the next few moments, we're considering the power of story, how the story of the life of this woman, as I've just said, the story of the life of this woman, when it encounters the story of the life of God in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, in some ways, factually, remains the same, but in every way is utterly transformed and changed. Three things. After she's encountered Jesus at the well, she remains factually the same individual she ever was, but she receives a whole new identity. Two, after she encounters Jesus at the well, she remains factually a member of the same community that she always was a member of, but she receives a whole new family. And three, after she's encountered Jesus at the well, she remains factually a person who lives or is located in the same physical place she's lived in her whole life. But she receives a whole new home. Identity, family, home. We're going to take them one by one. Let's start with the first one. After she's encountered Jesus at the well, she remains factually the same individual she's ever been, but she receives a whole new identity. And the clues in, the contrast between the way she moves out from Sychar, which is the name of her hometown, encounters Christ and then moves back into it. As she moves out, she's a woman who is afflicted, ashamed, and humiliated by the reality of her past life and indeed her current life. That's why, I think in verse 17, might want to double check, but the moment when Jesus says to her prophetically, I know all about you. You're a woman who's had five husbands, and the man you're currently living with is not your husband. He has to prophetically speak that into her life. Why? Because she would never elicit that information for herself. Why? Because she's ashamed. That's the clue. So she arrives at the well carrying deep shame, the weight of her disappointments, the fact of her individuality having been compromised according to her community in first century Palestine, that she's broken many of the Levitical laws which make her ceremonially unclean. No one would go near her. No one would want to touch her. No one would want to fraternize or associate with her. And yet when she returns back, here's the clue, and this is in verse 39, I do know that. She stands before her community the people who she was so ashamed to reveal her true identity to. And she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Put it another way. When she leaves Sikar, she's known by everyone and she's despised for it. But when she returns to Sikar, her hometown, she's known by Jesus and yet she's loved. Someone once said, if you're loved but you're not known, that's just superficial. If you're known, but you're not loved, that's our deepest fear. But if you're fully known and fully loved, well, that's what we in the church called freedom in Christ. I want to ask you this morning, do you know that kind of love? Do you know that kind of freedom? Do you know that kind of savior? So, 
given that I'm a preacher, I have the microphone, I should put my money where my mouth is and not pretend that I've got it all together. Anyone who knows anything about me knows that, but if you don't know me very well, here's a few things about me that I wouldn't necessarily tell you in open conversation because I like to keep them hidden. Some of you are feeling uncomfortable now. Don't worry, I'm not going to overshare. When I was five years old, my best friend James McCandless and I, in a nursery school down in Wimbledon, dug up the dead remains of our headmistress's cat. Just going to let that silence just sit with you for a second. Is he going to explain that? Some of you are like, he should explain that, because otherwise that sounds sick. Um, We've been learning about dinosaurs. We played in the bottom of her garden because the nursery was in her house. She was called Mrs. Burford, bless her. Um, James and I were digging, we discovered a bone, we thought it was a dinosaur bone, and for the next three afternoons we dug up her entire dead cat. I still remember the conversation with my mum and dad when I brought the bones home and said, look, we've found a dinosaur. I think they knew immediately it wasn't a dinosaur, it was a cat. That's something I would never tell you, but it's true. Another story about me, a few years ago I entered a triathlon at Blenheim Palace, it was quite a competitive event. In fact, there were lots of events throughout that day, so there were thousands of supporters there. Brothers, sisters, friends, family members coming to root for the competitors. And in my race, I rocked up and I had two odd socks on, holes in my trainers, an old pair of football shorts, and a rough t-shirt. And I was surrounded by six foot two, six foot three South Africans, Australians, New Zealanders who were in full-length body wrap lycra with wrap-round Oakley shades, just looking the part, athletes. So I did the bike ride, I did the swim, and I did the run. And as I came up the home straight, the crowd was going wild for me. I mean nuts. One person even threw their hat in the air and said something like, Hallelujah, praise be God. I crossed the finishing line, and it turned out I'd come, not 100th or 150th, but third. Yeah, podium finish. Thank you. Thank you. Although, here's the rub. I was doing it with a friend of mine who I'd never beat beaten in any race ever for the whole of my life, and I'd known him since six years old. He's called James Cowan, a phenomenal athlete. And 20 minutes after I finished, I bumped into James in the finishing area, and he said to me, wow, Matt, you finished as well. And I said to to James, yeah, I finished 20 minutes ago. And he said to me, wow, that's unbelievable. Wait a second, and he fired his brow, because he's never lost to me before, so he was doing the math. He said, how many laps did you do on the bike? I said, just the one. He said, you're supposed to do five. (laughs) How many laps did you do on the run? Just the one. You're supposed to do ten. That's something I would never tell you in ordinary conversation, but it's the truth of my heart. But here's the thing. That's the funny stuff. There's a whole bunch of stuff about me that I really wouldn't want to share because it's the real stuff. And I could present this together, well, kind of together, or probably don't present this together, but I can try and present this together as I possibly can up here like I've got it all together. Um, but it's not true. Do you know what? I'm sharp with my tongue. I've got a short temper. I shout at my kids. Sometimes I go passive-aggressive on those nearest and dearest to me. I had an anger problem since I was little. Um, my mum and dad took me to see a psychotherapist when, when I was about 10 because they didn't know what to do with me. It was only one session. I decided I never wanted to go back because even then I just felt like, oh, I don't want to do that, so I'd behave myself. But I've got an anger problem, and God's been gracious to me in the last 10 years. He's blessed me with that, and, I'm, and by God's grace, we're getting there. But you know what? I probably wouldn't share that with everyone that I meet, but it's the truth about me. But here's the thing. To be loved and known is superficial. To be known 
but not loved is our deepest fear. But to be fully known and fully loved is what we call freedom in Christ. Do you know it? The woman at the well leaves Sychar, known and despised, and she returns to her town, free in the fact that she's known by the one who calls her clean. Amen? Second thing. I have noticed I've been saying amen a bit. I'm sorry. It's almost like a nervous stop. I need to stop saying that. I listened to my talk back a few weeks ago. I was like, that's way too much. Anyway, um, point number two. She remains a member of the same community, um, but she receives a whole new family. And the clues in the fact that she's gathering water at midday, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to recognize that you wouldn't want to go out in the heat of the midday Middle Eastern sun to collect water. Why is she doing that? It's an avoidance mechanism. As I just said, she's on the fringes. She's an outcast. If you were a woman in Sikar, you would join with the other women and travel most likely in the early hours of the morning or the late hours of the afternoon for two reasons. One, to avoid the heat of the midday sun, but also two, because it's dangerous out there and you wouldn't want to be traveling on your own as a single woman in an area like that. And yet she is. Here Jesus encounters her. We're told, I think it's in verse 6, that it's around noonday. It's midday. Why is that? Because even though she exists in the heart of her community, she's invisible to everyone. But when she returns, she's a member of the family of God. She's bound together in Christ with the other Christians, the sisters and brothers who've been forgiven of their sins and their past. And it gives her a confidence and a freedom, the like of which she's probably never experienced before. Here's the difference, I would say, between community and family. The currency of community is conditional friendship, but the currency of family is unconditional love. She leaves her town under the principle, the enslaving weight of the currency of community. Why is it a weight to her? Well, because it's conditional, and she's not their friend. But she returns to her community under the liberating power of family, the unconditional love of the father. Let me illustrate that. There was a father, I know this story is true, I don't know them very well, but I know this is the true part of the story, who adopted a daughter. And in her teenage years, because of some deep trauma that she had suffered as a young girl, she found herself going completely off the rails And so he would have to travel into town week in, week out in the early hours or the late hours of the night to collect his adopted daughter from whichever dive or seedy hole or chaotic environment she'd found herself in. And in the car on the way home, as she would often be screaming at him or shouting at him or just slumped in the corner staring out the window at the neon lights running by, high on the drugs or the alcohol that she'd been filling herself with that night, He would speak five words over her, and they were these words. So I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. I don't know many stories that illustrate the principle of family better than that. She's no longer under the weight of conditional friendship. She's been bound up together with a father who knows how to speak the language of unconditional love. Now, I don't know how that story ends. I don't have a neat, tidy preacher's ending to that story, so who knows where she is now. 
but I know that in that moment he's releasing something over his adopted daughter that has to do with the heart of the kingdom of God. That even in her darkest moment, he speaks life and love over her. Do you know that? Do you know you're part of God's family? And that means you're subject to unconditional love. You're not a member of a nice community subject to conditional friendship. So after her encounter with Jesus, she remains factually the same individual but has received a whole new identity. She remains factually the same member of the community that she's always remained, but she receives a whole new family. And lastly, she remains physically located in the same place that she's always lived, the same dusty old boring town, and yet she receives a whole new inheritance and a whole new home. What would it look like or feel like if you're that woman, physically located in a place which you call home but which despises you? Well, it would probably look like crippling anxiety and catastrophic enslavement. What would it feel like to return back to that same town, that same place, knowing that the orientation of your heart is no longer this world, but the world of heaven, the kingdom of God, that she can go about her day-to-day living and breathing ordinary acts, but know that her identity is hidden with Christ and that she's bound for heaven. In Hebrews, one of the books in the New Testament, it talks about an orientation which faith releases in the believer, which makes them feel like strangers or aliens. This is verse 12, in a foreign land. And we might hear that and say, well, that's bad. But I think the writer is trying to say, no, there's, an act, there's a liberating principle at the heart of that, which means that you can do a deep dive into your community. You can be fully committed and throw yourself into your neighborhood, your streets with your friends and all the mess and the brokenness and the beauty that surrounds us, knowing that you're bound for a different place. Some people might mock that and say that's pie-in-the-sky theology. But actually, C.S. Lewis said, the people who are most committed to this world are the people who know they're bound for the, hev- for the kingdom of heaven. Augustine, who was one of the early church fathers writing in the 5th century, faced a mass exodus of refugees when Rome fell. It was overtaken by the Germanic barbaric hordes in the middle of the 5th century, and thousands of Romans streamed south, and they crossed the oceans, and they hit North Africa, where Augustine was then a bishop. And they were asking this question, how is it possible that the eternal city of Rome has fallen? Where do we place our identity? Where is our home? And Augustine wrote one of the most famous works in Christianity, which I have to confess I haven't yet read. Yet is the dominant word. You need to hear that. I will be reading it. But I know that in that work, he explores a whole new idea, which to many people in that day was utterly liberating. Because he said, if you're looking for an eternal city on this earth, you're looking in the wrong place. All kingdoms fall. All rulers bow. Everything comes to the end. The only source of true hope is the eternal city of God, hidden in Christ with the king of heaven and earth. That's a lot to take in for this woman. She leaves a town where her physical location and her home are one and the same thing, and it cripples her. She returns to the same place, knowing that her identity is hidden with Christ, and she's bound for a different kingdom, and it liberates her. But here's the most extraordinary thing about this story. 
it doesn't just stop with the woman. It only begins with her. If you read on in the passage we just heard, verses 39, 40, 41, and 42, you recognize that when she goes back to the town, she tells everyone what's happened to her. And people that would never have listened to her before desperately want to get in touch with Jesus and see for themselves with their own eyes the man who told her everything she ever did and pronounces her free, loved, and embraced. And so her story becomes the story of her community. And an interesting idea, given that we're reading the story 2,000 years later, the story of that community, which is the liberating and transformative saving power of Jesus Christ for the woman, now becomes our story. That what's available to her by the well 2,000 years ago is now available to us today. Why don't we stand as I...